welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Yares. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. In the spring of 1997, a teenage girl and her Scoobies started defending the town of Sunnydale and the world from previously unimaginable demons, all while being on time for chemistry class. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, created by Joss Whedon, has never been fully appreciated for putting the teen soap era of television on the map. Until today. Our very own Buffy Buffs join us today. Co-host of our Free Thoughts podcast and research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, Trevor Burst. So glad we're finally doing the, the episode on the greatest television show in the history of mankind and one of the greatest pieces of art ever created by human beings. Happy to be here. <laughs> and the executive director of Feminists for Liberty, Kat Murdy. Uh, I watched Buffy all the way through three times over lockdown. So, uh, and that wasn't my first time. So I am very excited to talk all to Buffy. <laughs> Wow. Buffy buffs in the house. <laughs> this is not their first rodeo. Um, I will say this, you know, very high praise right off the bat from both of our guests today. How did Buffy become so significant? Why did it garner such a following both, you know, critically, commercially and sort of in a cult manner in the years past? I mean, how did it become so popular that Wikipedia has to have its own page specifically called Buffy Studies for all of the <laughs> academic literature on this subject? Like what? Because honestly, I had never watched Buffy before we were preparing for this podcast. I... Didn't have a lot of interest in it, but I'd heard so much about it. I never understood why. Give me your takes for why you think it had the effect that it did. Well, I think it's it's first important to look at the nature of television in 1997, um, and it's that's as the oldest one in the in the virtual room <laughs> here. Uh, the I, just because the medium is the message, the fact that you had to. You know, be at home at eight o'clock on Tuesday was the defining technological characteristic of the time. So, if, so your most of your shows were very lightly serialized, um, if at all. And you knew on a show like Star Trek, which is like notorious for this, and I, I like Star Trek a lot, but you always know they're going to fix whatever is the problem before the end of the show. Like it's you just know it's like well they got ten minutes and it looks bad, but it's going to be fixed unless it's like a season finale. Like that's pretty or a two part. You you just knew. And you also, this was common for other, all pretty much all other shows too, that the characters on these shows seem to forget that they that they had done similar things like two <laughs> weeks ago. You know, they just they don't remember. It's like remember, like you can count on one hand how many Next Generation episodes re- refer to even a previous episode. It's just like, why don't we ever grow as people? Like, why don't we actually become better at doing this if we're doing this every Tuesday? So that I think is you know people cite. The Sopranos, right, rightfully, and The Wire is, you know, sort of inaugurating the modern era of, of television. But I think Buffy deserves a place in that because there's just something interesting about it. Much, much, I think, less to like you, you Landry and Natalie that it would be because you've seen so many shows like this. But if you flipped on the television, you know, in 1999, and suddenly these characters are referring to what happened to them before, like a good example is the Halloween episode in season two is consistently referred to as like, well, remember the time I was a soldier and it's like, well, at least the he learned, at least this was a thing that they, he learned about, right. They, they, they grew over time. So I think that's, you know, aside from the, the fact that the writing is incredible and, and other things we could talk about that it created an entire generation of writers who write like Joss Whedon, like all that stuff is, is, but there's a weird timelessness to it. And maybe, you know, Natalie, you can disagree with me or Landry, but I find it very interesting. Like also, at my, because I'm like I am to Buffy is 
as uh, Paul was to Jesus, right? <laughs> like I'm not the message, but I am the messenger. And so I proselytized Buffy for you know two decades now. And I usually, you know, went over. So, so Veronique de Rougie, her daughters, like were 18 and 16. Well, I got all of them to watch Buffy, but like even like her daughters who were 18 and 16, like just tore through it and loved it and found it to be, you know, relevant and not dated. So it just says something about the quality of the show. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Buffy is just a good TV show. And I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, as Trevor mentioned, uh, 90s TV, I, I watch a lot of 90s TV. And when you watch it in the sort of modern version of binge watching, there's just so many plot holes and so many things. And uh, and part of this was because you really had to watch each episode uh, only at a specific time. And there wasn't the ability to sit and binge and watch the whole thing. And they kind of assumed that you would forget details or you would forget this. And uh, it wasn't really all that important for the development of the show. And Buffy turns that on its head. Um, so when I was watching it, when it was actually on the air, I wasn't, you know, writing down, making sure to watch at that time. I just sort of like watched Buffy whenever I was swimming through and I saw it was on TV. I was like, oh, yeah, I like this show. Let me go watch it. Watch some reruns sometimes, whatever. Um, and that's how I watched most 90s television. I was just never the kind of person who scheduled out when I was going to watch stuff. And then... Um, now that I can binge, I do binge and I go back and watch all these shows and most of them have these glaring holes in them that Buffy just doesn't. Buffy builds the characters, Buffy references back and, you know, and it has all of these interesting little details that don't get dropped that might get picked up even like a couple seasons later, all of a sudden something happens or you, uh, each time you're watching, you go back and you're like, oh, actually, that makes sense because I remember that character had this experience that would make sense why they would then think about this in this way in a significantly later episode, even though that's not even referenced, right? So I think that's a big part of it. Um, but honestly, Buffy just completely changed the genre. Um, you know, Joss Whedon has talked about how um, Buffy is is supposed to be that, like, perky blonde cheerleader girl that you see in every horror movie, every like um monster movie of the genre who dies usually <laughs> always first dies. Or right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Always dies, always like does all of this. And so she's built as that trope, but she's the blonde cheerleader who loves fashion, who loves shopping, who's a you know, who is a teenage girl, a really teenage girl, pretty feminine, all of that. And she's the baddest bitch on the show. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to put it. Like she's out there saving the world every episode and, and she's doing it without sacrificing who she is as this very feminine preppy little girl. And uh, I think that that was really cool and that completely changed the genre. And uh, I think that that's also what's made it stand out and uh, you know, withstand the test of time where it's still a good show when you watch it now. It, unlike a lot of other 90s shows where you're like, yeah, I like it, but you kind of have to look at it through the lens of like, well, you know, people kind of viewed things differently, uh, you know, now almost like 30 years ago. Um, but you don't have to do that as much with Buffy. It, you really see it and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and she was a strong, powerful female character then and she still is now. There's another interesting aspect just on the way Buffy approaches its subject matter, because, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons, we just take a, a genre of, of media where it's sort of weird stuff happens. So that's science fiction, fantasy, monsters. It wasn't too too popular before, let's say, 2000. I mean, X-Files was a trailblazing show for that. And you can name these other ones like Star Trek and stuff, but it wasn't 
winning like Emmys or you know was it smashing up the box office? And you could say things like you know Lord of the Rings and all because we live now in a world where everyone loves to watch weird stuff and accept all these weird premises just as like a matter of course. You're just like okay, sure, yes, Guardians of the Galaxy, they're in space, <laughs> they're fighting this, whatever, I'll go with it. But like one of the things Buffy did to make that work and make that pill easier to swallow is the characters themselves talk about like how silly it is what they're doing. Or like they just, I mean, and by doing that, they like, they make it easier to be like, all right, I'm with you. Like, why are we fighting monsters? Like we're living in a world with vampires. Is this really happening? Like, and they just reference, you know, there's one of my favorite lines for that is, is the fifth season episode one Buffy versus Dracula when they find his huge mansion, you know, and they just have to say like, Xander has to say, Oh, I'm so glad that there's a huge mansion in Sunnydale <laughs> that we never have seen before. That kind of stuff just like really helps you be like, yes, okay, yes, this is silly, but we're all having fun together. I think that that's one of the strengths of the show, right? It's also just like really strong acting. There's amazing, uh, powerful stuff. But then the show itself is not afraid to be campy, and it really embraces the campiness of sci-fi and monster movies. And at the same time... It also addresses these really like deep, serious uh, points as well. And so th those things are very well balanced. Uh, I know that when uh, I know I've brought up several times that we should cover the show, but I think uh, the Twitter exchange that really uh, led to us doing this episode, Trevor was referencing uh, spoiler alert. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> uh, the, the episode in which Buffy's mom dies of brain cancer and she's actually in uh She's in recovery and it seems like everything's going well and then she just dies. And it's one of the most beautifully done like cinematic things on television, I think, outside of the show, outside of the genre. It's just a beautiful episode. And so they really do touch on these very serious uh, issues and they do it really well. And at the same time, they all they're also willing to do like a musical episode. <laughs> they they make jokes episode. about the genre. <laughs> they like it's poking fun. Oh, I love that episode. <laughs> but the whole thing is sort of like poking fun at this. And yet it also is equally able to touch on the seriousness of everything that's happening around it. And uh, I think that that's what makes it really good. And the fact that the actors themselves are well versed enough to be able to play off both and be able to play off both even in the same episode. They're just really strong, good characters. I may or may not own once more with feeling on vinyl. Let's <laughs> say I do. I love <laughs> it. I thought it was great. I, 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 just, it's, I don't even get me started. But anyway, you guys, that's <laughs> I have the vinyl copy. I can come over and listen to it in my awesome listening room. We could sing all the words. <laughs> I was just so. All I'll say about that episode, I was just very caught off guard. I mean, I did think it was funny. Like, and Xander's reaction was like, oh, like, I didn't realize. <laughs> and like, I, I think, and getting back to what Kat was saying, I think the show is like, very good at being self-aware um not just like the characters but like also like the overarching uh the overarching show and what was because this is the first time i've watched it all the way through um i had seen an episode here or there but didn't like understand the larger context um but what really sh struck me in terms of like why i think it's probably as famous as it is now or even more famous than it was then um was partially because of the way the episode's 
were framed. So they always had like a battle that a battle of evil that was going on in that episode, but then there was always like the overarching evil from this season as well. Um, and the overarching evil like from this season was either sometimes obvious depending on the season or other times just like didn't come up until like four or five episodes from the end of the season. Um, but then I started thinking about all those, sh- all these shows that came after it that are like pretty much exactly the same. So like Lost does it that way. One of my favorite uh, vampire shows, Vampire Diaries does it that way. Um, and I think Supernatural does it that way too. Um, and then I started realizing that like, I, so I, I really enjoyed the show, which I'm not surprised at all. I just had never gotten a chance to watching it all. Um, and I think it's partially because it brings in like, like we were saying, like the campy self-aware, like comedy almost aspect and like a lot of like the Supernatural-esque stuff that I like. Um, and then it also, it had like a weird nostalgia. I think that's because I like watching it now. Like for some reason, when, when I was watching like, the first season, all I could think about was my so-called life. Um, and like, and I, I had seen that, uh, I'd seen that before. Um, and at all, I think it only had one season, but I was like, I got this like weird, I was like, this is just like, like the, in terms of like the, the video style and all that kind of stuff remind me so much of my so-called life, put all the demon fighting aside. Um, but then I had like this weird nostalgia towards it as well. I was like, this is kind of cool. You brought up other vampire shows specifically, and I think it is interesting that we talk about Buffy as a show. I mean, they are there's all sorts of demons that they come up with and this concept of demons as being like more of a catch all term rather than the sort of. Uh, you know, n- normal way we we imagine what a demon is uh, is important, but it is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It got started as a series about vampires, and that is you know the the big important characters for the most part uh, central to the story are somehow related to this sort of vampire culture. Um, and there's something about that device of vampirism and being sort of out of time. That is really, really interesting. You see it even in, you know, today's vampire series that are really, really popular, like What We Do in the Shadows, which sort of takes it in a comedic direction, or uh, the movie with Tilda Swinton and uh, uh, the other guy, Only Lovers Left Alive, which is about a, a series, a couple of vampires that are sort of dealing with different ways of being stuck in the past. And uh, the question of whether you are determined by your circumstances with your time or your place or the destiny that you've been bestowed upon um, like like Buffy is. And it, it just got me thinking, like, how much of this show is about the idea of self-determination and destiny and, and choice in what you can do with your life because I see it in a lot of other Joss Whedon shows. You know, there's a little bit in Firefly. There's definitely a lot of it in uh, a show that I watched several years ago, Dollhouse, that I really, really enjoy. Um, so I was just curious about what your thoughts about that theme in the show are for Buffy. Okay, well, can I give my grand overarching theory? Here we go. <laughs> Drum roll, please. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we talked about how great, how great it is in so many different ways, but and but to me, like it's the, the deeply tragic aspect to it. Like, I mean, the just emotional parts. I mean, Kat mentioned the body episode, and there's so many other parts. But I think ultimately, with both the vampires, you know, you you are this thing. How much can you choose differently, like with Angel, or more even with Spike? Um, but the 
the ultimate so in uh so jean paul sartre wrote this essay called existentialism as a humanism where he defined existentialism as uh existence before essence and what he means by that is that anytime anything is made uh, by people like you make a hammer or in his example it's a paper knife which is a knife to cut apart the pages of books so you make a hammer but before a hammer exists you have to conceive of a hammer so you have a, you have an essence in your head before the hammer actually exists now that's not true of like rocks you know and, and other things uh, but and his argument was that being a human being means that you're not for anything and, and what existentialism is is dealing with the fact and at least in an atheistic universe you're not for anything you're not made for anything you have no purpose you exist before you have an essence and dealing with that is existentialism and interestingly, I think a lot of people think that if someone told them what they were for, maybe God or the Watchers Council, if someone told them what they were for, like this is what you're supposed to do with your life, that it would make life easier. And I think Buffy is fundamentally about that that is not true. Like it, it, if you are told that you have to do this thing, like you have to kill the vampires and you can't go to the mall and you can't like date boys and stuff like this, um, it makes your life much harder. And it ends up being this question of choice that what, what matters is not that you're for this, whether that includes on the vampire side, it's whether you make the choices to move towards something that are your free choices. Like Buffy chooses to do this, right? Like, and that's, and that to me is like the existential fable of Buffy. And it can kind of fit all this stuff into it, like the choices you make and what, and when and how you're allowed to make them, even if you're supposedly some mystical creature who was designed for one purpose, like you can, you still can make a choice. So yes, I think Landry's, that is like a huge theme of the show, which I think is why it has a lot of like libertarian in the philosophical sense of the term, like themes to it. Yeah, I think connected to that is this whole overarching theme of sort of the individual versus the collective and even within the collective, the sort of like voluntary collective versus this imposed collective. And you see that whether it's Buffy uh, rebelling against the Watchers Council, uh, you know, whether seeing uh, the episode in which she first meets the uh, the first layer um, and finds out how the first layer was sort of... Um, sort of enslaved by this Watcher's Council. It's this really, from a feminist perspective, it's very fascinating because she's the strong female energy that's uh, literally enslaved by this patriarchy of men who are going to then own her life, tell her what to do, and that's like the how the Watcher's Council ends up working. You see that in specific episodes. Uh, there's an episode about homelessness um, after... Um, you know, at the beginning of, I think, the third season, Buffy has run away from home and she kind of gets involved. The episode is called Anne. It's yes, episode yes, one. Yes, and uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, that's her uh, name. Uh, and so the, uh, there's these kids that are being uh, imprisoned uh, by this hell demon. And uh, you you very much see this like you you have no choice. You have to work for our state. You, you see it when um, which Buffy then rebels against. You see it with the initiative. Uh, which again sort of like owns the the people in the program. Buffy tries to join it and realizes that this doesn't work. They're doing a terrible job. There's all sorts of problems with the initiative. Um, you see it with the way that uh, when they have multiple slayers towards the end, they sort of, they create their own collective. And I think when, uh, when the characters are able to be themselves as their own individual and find their own individual strength and then work with others, to uh to build out that strength whether it's the chosen family that they have the Tara Tara uh one of the characters breaks away from her abusive family and joins the chosen family of the Scoobies whether it's uh 
all of the Slayers coming together to save the world at the end, whether it's uh, the Scoobies themselves, who are sort of this network of uh, really honestly, like, the weirdos of society, whether it's, you know, at the beginning it starts with, like, Buffy and her friends Xander and Willow, who are sort of these nerdy kids who, uh, you know, they're just nerdy kids. They're not completely outcasts, but they're not really, like, the cool kids in school. Um, but then over time, they gather more and more people, including a lot of people who the Watchers would immediately classify as uh big as bads that need to be killed uh whether it's characters like spike or angel or whether it's um you know all sorts of other people that they work with and it really comes down to i think that there's no set good or bad there's not like specific good people and bad people they all have this sort of in this gray area and they're all individuals and they're all making choices and they're able to work together best when they're respecting who they are as individuals and what their strengths are and you know, voluntarily working together. And I think that that's one of just these many libertarian themes throughout the show. I do have to say one of my my favorite parts about that was when, um, uh, I think it's, is it the end of season three? Trevor's going to correct me no matter what I say. So I think it was like somewhere around that area was that uh, when Buffy was like trying to defend the council or uh, to why like she should have her group of Scoobies and why they should stay together and um, why the Slayer isn't like an alone project. Um, and, oh, Trevor, you're not going to correct me. Was it the end of season three? Are you, if you're talking about the episode Powerless, I mean, one where they take yes. the powers as part yeah, of that experiment. As part, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's I think the 18th episode of season three. I oh, believe. I was close. Okay. <laughs> um, but I also just, that episode was, to me was just like kind of cute because Buffy was like validating the value of like her, fr- uh, her friends and how they all like kind of have this like special little niche within their group, right? So, like, Willow does witchcraft, and then uh, Buffy, like, magically gets a sister <laughs> in season five. But, like, then she, like, has a role. And I think it, like, everyone kind of figured out uh, through, like, their character development what they were, like, what their identity within the group was, which was another cool thing, like, throughout the show. Because, like, in the beginning, I know, too, it was kind of funny to watch Xander kind of, like, flounder and not really like he was like upset they didn't have special powers and then like but also wanted to be part of the crew um i just thought like that was another interesting thing to watch everyone like come into their own and kind of like accept their like their position and or like their strategic advantage within their little scooby gang yeah i think what's interesting too is you're talking about how uh the slayer was always viewed as sort of the solo project right like and you see this interesting, almost like counterfactual. So Buffy dies early on, but only for a second she drowns. But because of her friends, she doesn't actually die. She's revived, she saves. But in that second that she dies, uh, another Slayer is called Ford. There's Kendra, Kendra the Second Slayer. Now, Kendra the Second Slayer has spent her entire life since childhood, you know, training to be the Slayer. She has no friends. She's never dated anyone. She has no personal interest. She doesn't have a family. She has nothing. Her entire life has been training to be the Slayer. And so when she comes forward, she and Buffy clash on this because she sees Buffy and Buffy has all these friends she hangs out with. Buffy is a cheerleader. Buffy's like going to high school. She has a boyfriend who is a vampire, like all of these different things. She's like, what is going on here? And uh, so they really have a clash over this idea that the only way to do it is all on your own. And Buffy's saying, like, no, there's actually this value in this collective uh, that's sort of chosen that, you know, that saved her. That's the reason that she's even there at that point. And, uh, you know, Kendra ends up 
dying as well, um, you know, as she sees the value of the collective. But even then, she sort of dies because she didn't have that support network herself. And so you see that as well, which I think is really interesting, uh, particularly as, you know, if we're going to go back to the libertarian themes of this, a lot of people view libertarianism as like, oh, okay, you don't think that there's value in people. You think that there's only everything should only be individualistic, et cetera. And I think that, no, that's not actually what it is. It's that there is value in all people because of who they are as individuals and because of how as individuals they are able to interact with other individuals, right? So it's like, it's not enforced collectivism, but really libertarianism in its strength is people choosing to work with each other and people choosing, uh, you know, to find those strengths together as a group, whether it's, you know, markets that span the world or whether in this case it's a teenager saving the world from the big bad. Yeah. And of course the government is either either non-existent either you're like where the hell are the police or malevolent as in season three with the mayor and season four with the initiative so yeah i don't think even though joss whedon and we talked about this with firefly like he's not a libertarian uh, but he you know he he didn't rely upon the government to fix these problems and he wouldn't have been interested in that that story and he, he was definitely saying well they make it worse and the, the worst rise to the top whether it's the initiative or or the mayor I had actually written down in my notes. I was like, I was like, what do the police do in Sunnydale? Because like they like reference them, but like and there's like, oh, they but they're also like aware that there are demons around, and sometimes they help the demons. Like if you're the mayor, um, but <laughs> I mean, I, my, my theory is is that they're they're probably heavily unionized and they cook their murder rate, so people don't think that it's a uh, you know it's as high as it possibly is. Uh, uh, you know, that would be my guess if they're anything like modern police departments. I, I think also, like, it's very much it's part of the whole thing. Like, the people in the town, uh, you know, like, they've normalized this. And they're like, oh, yeah, our town's kooky. Yeah. But, like, they don't really believe in vampires. They don't believe in things. Uh, there's this episode. Trevor will know the name of the episode, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, this episode of witchcraft, right? And they have this anti-witchcraft movement, which is actually very relevant for uh, the contemporary time of the episode, right? Because there were all of these like parents groups that were against shows like Buffy because they thought that it promoted witchcraft. And you have this parents group that's led by Joyce, uh, Buffy's mom who, uh, you know, they almost burn Buffy at the stake because uh, they're worried about witchcraft and things like that in their town. And they're talking about uh, Joyce makes this big speech to rally all the, uh, all of the uh, parents to join her group. And uh, one of the things she talks about is like, how many of how many of our loved ones have died of uh, spontaneous neck rupture and stuff? So uh, you know, they're not like vampire deaths, but they're like clearly there's something weird going on in our town. But they're not exactly clued in. I think they're sort of ignoring it because, like, honestly, if a bunch of people were dying in your town all the time, would you? Uh, would most people say like, oh, clearly it's because we live on a hellmouth <laughs> and there's a lot of vampires and evil beings around? No, you wouldn't. Of course not. So like, I think that that's also part of it. And that's kind of what makes the show good. That goes back into the sort of like, it's campy, but it's also realistic. That episode is called Gingerbread. Uh, I think it's the third episode, 19th episode of the third season, but I, don't call me on exactly the numbers, <laughs> but it's called Gingerbread. Don't worry, this isn't being recorded or anything, (laughs) so there will be no record if you get it wrong. 
kind of like a malevolent music man, right? Like or monorail from the Simpsons. <laughs> sure, you got trouble. Like you know, and then you gotta have, get everyone together. Best for the Simpsons episode, by the way, monorail. <laughs> love it. So many great, you know, musical, you know, references and and sort of tropes in these shows. Like I, it was weird, but I when we watched when I watched the musical episode, the thing that I thought about is you know there are a lot of great shows that sort of took the idea of the musical episode at certain points and you know would do it for an episode but i can see the buffy influences and the campiness on a show that took that idea and took it to the nth degree like crazy ex-girlfriend which is a (laughs) hilarious and so so smart show um and and i can see some of the tonal choices and things like that and the the recurrence of themes which is really interesting because musicals in their history for a long time you know uh, when you would sing things in song, it was about, you know, things that you weren't expressing outward. It was about expressing your thoughts and feelings and thing musicals like Oklahoma or things like that sort of set the trend that those songs could then further the plot and not just be, you know, set dressing and ways to sort of explore themes but not move the plot forward. And they all and this show does all of that and takes it and pushes it even forward even more. Other than I'm. I mean, I, I might be wrong, but like, you know, a lot of shows have had musical episodes now. And I, Buffy was the first. And except for something like Cop Rock, which is this notoriously bad all musical cop show from the mid 90s. That if you ever want to like, you know, have a, a, a if you ever like swallow poison and want to purge <laughs> your stomach, you can just put on a, a YouTube episode. It's just unbelievably bad. Uh, so and part of the reason is, is because of that the lack of the self-awareness that is very even more important when you have a musical episode and you have to be like, why are we all singing? <laughs> right. Like you have, you, someone has to bring that up. Right. Why are we all singing? Why is this happening? And, and cop rock was so earnest. I mean, I had so many things wrong with it. It was so earnest. So I think Buffy is the first for, for television. I really want to talk about the elephant in the room here because I think that it is going to come up like Joss Whedon's the scandal around uh, the way that he was treating the cast and specifically the female members of the cast and how that and I think a lot of people were surprised about that um, because, you know, like Buffy is this show about a strong female character. They're these strong female characters. I mean, uh, you know, they poke fun at it with things like, for instance, uh, they have a lot of misogynistic bad characters that they're pushing back against. They have all of these kinds of things, uh, you know, and uh, they don't have 2D women. And the women are not focused around the men so much. It's they're as full of characters as everyone else. And so people were surprised about this. And to be honest, it never shocked me. Like, I was just like, oh, yep, that makes sense. That's pretty much what I would expect. And it's because of Xander, right? So, like, Xander is much beloved character. Um, he always annoyed me. I was like, I just really don't like Xander. Um, and it's because Xander is this sort of, like, prototypical nice guy. And there's, this, there's these characters, like, one of the big bads are the trio, who are these, um, you know, really, like, incel-like, um, incel-like nerdy kids who go to high school with Buffy and then turn into this... Uh, this collect again collective this is a bad collective uh, they want to be super villains they're not quite good at it but they they really hate women etc things like that and so they're sort of written uh to poke fun uh at these sci-fi characters or sci-fi fans uh who you know hate women and are super nerdy and they want to be the bad guys or they want to be the heroes of the show and stuff and so there's that but then the real the real kind of insidious character is Xander in here, right? Because he's 
He's the character that Joss Whedon himself has said was written as Joss Whedon. Xander is supposed to be Joss Whedon when he was a teenager if he were in this environment. And he really is this nice guy trope. He's, you know, he views himself as the the moral character. He views himself as like the arbiter of what's good and great in the world. And he's also like he's jealous. Uh, he's angry that Buffy is not interested in him. He feels that he's owed uh, her attentions. He feels... You know, he he has all these like very misogynistic views that are sort of the subtle misogyny that's under underneath this sort of like view of himself as this very honorable man. And so, uh, you know, when I heard that about the things coming out, I was like, yep, that's uh, that's pretty much what I thought, because this is how Joss Whedon has himself written a flattering character of himself has these major problems, uh, you know, with just kind of being not a very nice person, really. Um, and then, of course, like, so there's a larger Buffyverse, and there are some funny things, like, for instance, in Angel, um, Charisma Carpenter's character, and Charisma Carpenter was one of the people who really came out against Joss Whedon uh, when these allegations came out, and a lot of people said that she was one of the ones that he was worse, uh, was worst to, acted most horribly to, um, you know, and she's on Buffy, she's on Angel, and there's this episode in Angel where she is, you know, she's trying to be an actress and uh, she's being abused by the show director. And I was like, how do you write this episode? And it's like literally about you. Like, how, but yeah, so uh, I do think that like the show is good. The show is powerful. There are definitely some some things like the fact that there's, uh, you know, Buffy gets raped by Spike in uh, one of the episodes. And it's very much this like, that's one of my least favorite episodes for a couple different reasons. One, because I really like Spike as a character. I think he's one of the most interesting and well-developed and definitely one of the best acted characters in the show. Um, he was only supposed to be there for five episodes and then he was so good that they kept him and then they put him on the whole spinoff and everything. But, um, but one of the things that I really hate about that is because it goes back to these, that old, trope that we see in pop culture all the time that women are made stronger through sexual assault and that's like how you show the development of a character we see it on shows like game of thrones we show, see it on all sorts of movies across pop culture and i think that this is like one of those episodes where it was just like look you made this whole show to turn these tropes on their head and then you still cling to them and so there are these Bots where it sort of pushes through and it's like this is this fantastic show it's got all these strengths and you can also see kind of like where it's coming up at the edges and you see kind of like yeah this makes sense that this is sort of like your character joss yeah and i also didn't like the spike sort of turn with that specific plot line because the way it sort of gets rationalized with him is that it's like it's sort of this demonic manifestation of this tainted soul or lack of that he has. And it really kind of plays into this excusing way of viewing sexual assault that like, you know, you couldn't control yourself and that there was something that, you know, you, you didn't have that, you know, it's really not your fault because this happened. Yes. And yeah. while you can, in you know, in the vera, vera similitude of the show – that might make sense. It creates this very, very messy message when you view it from a metaphorical level. And I, I, it made me sad, too, because I did like Spike as well as a, as a sort of interesting character. And I, I really like the way you, you brought up Xander as a sort of villainous character because 
it would be one thing if we got a really good chance to sort of and and see a a certain amount of change with him but a lot of the stuff is played for even just chuckles or laughs it's not even like a if it were written as a big laugh line some of his sort of like subtle misogyny it would be one thing because then you could possibly analyze it as wow, we're all laughing at how ridiculous it is that he can get away with saying this in this world. Sort of like a Michael Scott in the office scenario. Like they're they're so inept and removed from reality that it becomes funny. But when it's so subtle and it's not played for that, it just becomes baseline and like acceptable. And I, I think that is hopefully something that we can get away from and is the type of stuff that I see and have more problems with from this a from this era of of material and shows. Like when I watch, like it's not quite the same, but Friends or Seinfeld. The further and further I get away from it, it's it's the little things that I have more problems with rather than any big jokes that someone makes. Right. It's um, the stuff that's normalized as like this is okay, and that's that's what's really notable about Xander's character is. Not only is this the character that Joss has written as, like, here is his stand-in. This is the Joss Whedon stand-in in every episode. But it's also, like, here are all of these things that are sort of these subtle attitudes or these subtle, like, jokes or these things that he does that are sort of written off as, like, oh, that's perfectly normal and fine that really aren't. And so I think that those speak to this, like, yeah, okay, you might have characters where it's, like, okay, he's evil and, you know, he builds a he builds this evil robot and uh woman and he's very misogynistic so or like <laughs> there's so many like weird robots that beat women in the show and they're always like here is the evil and it's like okay yes that is clearly misogynistic and a problem there's more than one evil wife beating robot in the show or robot themed wife beating episode and uh yeah it's like yeah okay we see it that's evil but you know what it's also not great to be uh, this guy who thinks that you're owed sex by your friends because they are your friends and because you're a good guy. So, of course, you should get it and then be angry and be lashing out at them. And, you know, honestly, like even the way that Xander treats Anya, his fiance, uh, for a while on the show, who's another awesome character. She goes on all these, uh, you know, as an aside, she's always talking about how great capitalism is. And, you know, I love her. I, I love when fantastic. she starts working but, at the magic um, box <laughs> and she's like learning. Yes, <laughs> she's like yes. she learning yeah, how to and then talk she to customers. Over. You're like, you're not running your business right. Here is how you make profits. Yeah. You are doing it poorly. Yeah. Here's how you um, talk to a yeah, customer. Uh, Xander, Xander's character, I think, like, the fact that Xander is kind of treated as the moral arbiter of the show when he still has all these, these negative things, I think that that's kind of like, again, it sort of adds to that realism, particularly from that 90s period and the fact that this is actually how Joss views the world. But it's also like, it wasn't a surprise to hear the stuff about Joss. Well, I, I I think it was quite surprising. I I, I don't totally agree with the, that Xander exists in the nice guy trope. Like I I don't think you can take every every guy who has a crush <clears throat> on one of his like female friends and like put him into the nice guy trope as someone who thinks he's owed sex. Because I think at that at that point in the in the show, Xander is in like a big crisis. And I think the most subtly misogynistic thing about him is the fact that he doesn't he doesn't like the fact that like when willow gets her powers and anya has powers and tara has powers and he's the only he's the one who doesn't have powers that's to me the most sort of subtly misogynistic thing but i think that he's he's extremely 
sort of torn up by the fact that he doesn't think he has like a role or like any real great characteristics. You see this in the episode, the Zeppo, which is one of my favorite all time episodes where Xander runs around and, and kind of saves the world in the background. Um, in terms of Joss Whedon's behavior himself, uh, I wasn't surprised that people, uh, I think he's always been very willing to make jokes and at that time making jokes that were inappropriate. The thing that really shocked me was the revelation that Michelle Trachtenberg, like who plays Don, like was not allowed to be in a room alone with him. And then his, his ex-wife came out to it. I was surprised. Like, uh, I, I think he's, he's done a lot of very powerful things about women empowerment and, and what it means and how it makes women feel. So I, I was frankly surprised and it, it, it does color the show to watch, kind of watch and see, well, can you see this now? I agree. If you look carefully, you can see more of this stuff, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure it's, it's so much in Xander as it is in, in sort of other situational aspects. Well, I think it's interesting because well, I, I just think that it, it brings to mind the sort of absolutist, uh, the critique of absolutist, um, going back to the idea of self-determination and what, you know, who you are and what you can do as a person. And this isn't, you know, while we wrote it into the story, his actions and what they did to the show and what the show then subsequently did makes meaning on its own beyond what he intended. And it becomes this sort of commentary on absolutism and how you can, you know, create things that are great and can do a lot of really, really good things, but that doesn't absolve you of, you know, and, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that anyone here is trying to absolve Josh Whedon of, of his, you know, uh, of, of his terrible actions and how he's treating people, but it is a sort of interesting way of, of this content specifically of looking at what you can do with people who do bad things, but might also have good intentions or have done good things in the past. And it's an interesting well, way of looking at that. Well, that's why the spike thing is so interesting. And, and I mean, the, the rape, um, which is extremely disturbing. I mean, I've kind of liked the sixth season the most cause it's the darkest and it's the most about their own demons, but we forget. And we're talking about, you know, choice and predetermination and, you know, how much are you predetermined to do this? Well, spike, you know, it, it initially is only, quote unquote doing good things because he has a chip in his brain that hurts him when he you know does bad things but then at some point that chip is not working but he's still a vampire and so like the inherent in the idea of a vampire like what you said like that you know there's a there's a thing inside of him that he makes choices to not follow that like compels him to be bad that he resists right which makes him arguably better i mean a better person than than angel for example right so because that's a Kantian point, right? One of the weird implications of Immanuel Kant's work is that like kind of the more you want to do something and don't do it, the better person you are. So if you like really want to murder people and you don't murder people, you're like a better person than someone who doesn't want to murder people at all. Yes. Um, so like, and that's, and I think that that, that scene with Buffy, you know, like it's bad to, you know, care, just say excuse sexual assault or this, I hate the trope that it makes women stronger, but like, it's bad to excuse it, you know, and say, oh, well, this is like a thing inside of me. But in the case of Spike, it is a thing inside of him, like an actual thing inside of him, like a vampire, like, right? And it is, it is, that's the definition of a vampire. And, you know, at the same time, like, you know, feminists have said for many, some waves of feminists have argued that there are things inside men that can tell them to be sexually violent, right? Like, that's been an argument for some, some waves of feminists, like, 
So, you know, it, it's it's such a horrible thing to him because the whole thing is about his love for Buffy, you know, that it makes him go get his soul, right? Like, it's, it's like, it's sort of his his answer to what he what he tried to do there. But uh, no, it's like, it's, yeah, continue. Sorry. No, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, Spike via a- versus Angel. And I'm also really glad that you're probably the first person that I've seen uh, agree with me that Spike is an inherently better person than Angel is, right? Because Angel has a soul because he was cursed to have a soul so that he would feel bad, right? And Spike, sure, you can say that the uh, the initiative puts a chip in his head that doesn't allow him to harm humans. But even before that point, and then he chooses voluntarily to go and do this great penance at great, um, you know, and get a soul and all that. But he does a lot of good things, nice things. Before then, he makes a lot of choices that he doesn't necessarily need to do. Um, and yeah, Spike does a lot of evil, but he, um, you know, even prior to the chip, but he also makes a lot of choices to not do evil. He also makes, you know, he really in shows how this is really a scale. There's not good versus bad. It's all sorts of different things, whether it's, you know, the way that he takes care of Drusilla, the way his, uh, his devotion to her prior to becoming a vampire, his devotion to his, to a mother, as soon as he becomes a vampire, uh, theoretically he doesn't care about anyone else but the first thing he thinks about is his mom is dying of this disease he wants to turn her into a vampire so that she won't die so that he can continue to take care of her um, you know and he's also like he's sort of this nice guy loser um uh, you know, at the beginning of, uh, not the beginning of the show, but the beginning of his character, like who he was. Uh, my favorite episode is probably uh, the episode where you get to find out about how Spike became Spike. Um, and, you know, you find out that he was this kind of like nice guy character. He gets rejected by a woman. He's upset. And then he meets Drusilla, uh, who turns him into a vampire. Um, and then he's very loyal to Drusilla. He does make choices all the time based upon what's good versus bad versus his mother. As soon as she became a vampire, um, you know, which he did in order to save her. Uh, and he gives her a choice and does it as a choice and all of that. And then, uh, you know, the first thing she does is reject him and say, I don't like you anyway, <laughs> which I found very interesting. So I always think that it's sort of like viewed as the chip is the only reason that Spike does good things, but that's not true. Even prior to the chip, he had done many things that maybe he didn't always understand, but he clearly is operating on this moral framework that he has, uh, you know, whether he has a soul, whether he has a chip or not versus Angel only does good things because of the soul. When he loses the soul, he's immediately very sadistic and evil again, including to people like Buffy, who he supposedly loves and cares about. Uh, Whereas, um, you know, and including to uh, other vampires that he supposedly cares about, all of these kinds of things. Uh, So it really is only the existence of a soul that he gets and loses several times in the Buffy universe that makes him good or bad. Versus Spike you know, the focus is on whether he has a soul, whether he has a chip, but he's making decisions all throughout that make him good or bad, regardless of whether he has the chip or the soul. Well, and and I just, that I think that in terms of sort of nice guy syndrome problems, I think Angel is the biggest offender in that regard. And I think it, you know, it has to be mentioned that Angel essentially stalks Buffy, who's, you know, a hundred years younger than him or yeah. 200 years younger than him, essentially stalks her as a teenager before, you know, getting together with her, you know, and like Angel, I never liked the character in Buffy. He doesn't become a really good character until the show Angel. 
Um, and he becomes a very different character who is much more empowered and is not essentially stalking a teenager um, and thinking it's like, you know, the mission of his life to get with her, which which is creepy, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, he's a real creeper and he's only treated nicely because like he's like the teenage heartthrob yeah. and like that drove me nuts when I was watching I hate it. That. Uh, also, yeah, teenage I, heartthrob, that guy looks like 35, oh like everybody on this show. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's what they push on all these teenage shows, to be honest. And that's the thing, too. Landry was talking at the beginning about being, like, out of his time, right? And I think, like, part of it is, like, yeah, sure, uh, Angel, you know, comes from an earlier, uh, significantly earlier period over a century before Buffy but it's also he's out of his time because she's a 16 year old girl and he's like an approaching middle-aged man right so like it's very much treated as like oh it's because he comes from this other period but it's also because he's a creeper who's trying to get with a teenage girl I so before we switch into anything else I want to hear the opinion on the last season um I enjoyed it that's what I'll say. I'll start there. But I let I read quite a few reviews that said it was a letdown. Um, so then I was a little confused by those. And I want to I want to pull the crowd. I want to know if the last season was a fitting ending and um, kind of what your reactions were the first time you saw it. I know it's not the same when you're watching the show through and then you get or a second time or a third time because you already know what the ending is. Well, it's a it's a perfect ending um, in terms of the way it actually yeah. ends. The seventh season is not the strongest season. I mean, the thing about Buffy is that it's fundamentally a show about growing right. up. It's coming of age, which is like it's really good to watch it. I mean, again, people can watch it for the first time whenever, but like if you the fact that she's sixteen when it begins and she's twenty three when it ends, and she and her mom has died, like you know, Joss Whedon had told. Uh, Christine Sutherland, who plays Joyce, like that he needed to, she needed to come back. She's kind of out of the show. She's not very common, you know, present in the fourth season, but she needed to come back so he could kill her because it was extremely important to Buffy's arc that he kills her. And so she has to become the mom in many ways and then to all these girls. But the most, I mean, so, you know, it has issues. It, um, it, it has some pro- plot holes that are kind of weird because the, the Urukai, the really big vampire, suddenly become really easy to kill. Um, but then, but because of the theme, I think that I had said for my interpretation of Buffy, where you know she is the chosen one and she's the only one, and so that means that she's for something and she has to do this and has this obligation. And the way that that part of her life ends is when she's no longer the only one. And I and I think that that is a brilliant conceptual ending, like in terms of like conceiving of it properly. But but yeah, it's not the strongest season, but it's also where Buffy, you know, is the adult and has to do all of these things with all these mint mentees that she has in the house. So I think that that's an interesting part of it. And, you know, it's again, like Sarah, Sarah Michelle Geller acting throughout the whole show is so unbelievably incredible. And it's very, very good in particular in the seventh season. Yeah. I think that it has some of those problems that come about when you're trying to end a show. Yeah. Uh, there's always issues where it's like, you know, like ending a show is hard and there are a lot of things come about because of that and I think also part of it is like yeah it's the end of an era for folks and it's also like they're creating this new like Slayer Academy there's all of these new Slayers this is a different show than you started with it's completely different the whole feel of it is different people know there's something bad happening like all the all the non-related people in the town people who aren't involved in fighting the big bads are all like they fled town like no one wants to live here there's something bad everyone's sort of it's a different show right uh, but I will say that, like, 
two of my favorite episodes in the entire season, in the entire series, are the last two episodes of the series. Um, and they're really powerful. And again, I think part of this uh, really comes down to acting. Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, as Trevor said, but also James Marston, who plays Spike, is just in that final episode, um, you know, in every episode, you kind of, you see, there's all this subtlety that comes from his character um, that builds on the story in a way that uh, a lesser actor wouldn't have been able to do. But in that final episode, his acting is phenomenal. And it really leaves it where you're like, it could be anything. Like, the end could be anything. It's open to things, but it also, like, closes it. And it's like, it very much is, as Trevor said, like the ending of an era for Buffy in her own life, like what's going to happen in her life. And I think that's kind of where it ends it. Uh, and then, of course, like Spike comes back in Angel and uh, he's a fine character. I, I think like that kind of like if you view it in the Buffy verse, his coming back kind of makes uh, makes weakens that last episode of Buffy. But, um, but like, I see why he's one of the but most But more popular. Spike is always better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more Spike is always better. The only reason that I really like Angel is because of Spike and maybe Fred. Well, the, well, the, also the, the very last line is, you know, what do we do now? And that last scene of, of her, the last shot of her face with a slight smile, because, like, the question of what we do now is very different after the what happens last episode than in the seasons before it's not just the last episode maybe, it's maybe the last, she could like several seasons right yeah. like she's struggling with paying mm -hmm. bills she's raising uh her sister who was created uh you know who was created as part of this big bad uh you know story verse story arc uh and it was her creation that leads to her mother getting brain cancer her mom dies like she's struggling and all she was brought back from heaven to be back in hell on earth, like all of these terrible things going on. And so like, this is finally like her, like, okay, maybe I can start. Like I haven't had a chance to have my own life. Like since really she hit puberty. And then all of a sudden now is the first time, like maybe she can start thinking of the w world and what life can look like for her as a person and not just like holding literally the weight of the world on her shoulders. Which is the title of the fifth of the 21st <laughs> So Trevor, Kat, what else has been occupying your time uh, as we head into year three of being locked in technically? <laughs> we, the start of year three? That's a scary thought. I, I haven't said that out loud yet. Uh, being locked in is Great for my being great for my uh, consumption of pop culture. Let me just say that. I feel like <laughs> very true. Than ever previously in my life. Sure. Um, what else? What's been occupying your time? Dexter. I've been oh. watching the new uh, the new Dexter series. It's not getting as much attention as I would have liked to see, only because I really want it to get big, so they'll keep doing it. But it is phenomenal. It's been so good. Like cinematically um it's powerful like the storyline is good it doesn't feel as if this is just a reboot to do a reboot it really feels like here's a continuation here is you can watch it as its own show you can watch it if you enjoyed the original dexter which i did um i'm very as a millennial i'm very guilty of being a second screen person i'm always like on my phone doing other things and like when the new episode comes out it's very much a i've turned off the lights not looking at my phone, watching the screen, like just, it's really good. It's the story's good. The acting is good. The filmography is fantastic. And uh, I'm loving it so far. 
I on the video game front, uh, I will suggest a game called Twelve Minutes, uh, which has been getting a fair amount of attention. Which is a game that features uh, James James McAvoy, Willem Dafoe, and Daisy Ridley as the voice actors, and it's uh, it, you're stuck in a time loop for twelve minutes, and you have to solve essentially a mystery. Uh, it's it's a pretty short game. Uh, it's very very good, and I would also very much suggest the Guardians of the Galaxy game. Uh, it is absolutely fun. It is it is an original story. It's it's not taken from the movies, but it has a lot of that flavor. It is so well done. It is a blast to play. Definitely play it if you like uh, good good action video games, Marvel comic video games, games with good stories, funny games. Highly suggested. Uh, for me, I am just starting the Dune audiobook. Um, obviously, I've already seen Dune, but um, I was suggest I was told I think. Trevor, you might have told me this or Aaron told me that it's much better to, to listen to the audiobook um, if you're reading other things, which I am currently in the middle of like two yeah, or three other books. Me, um, and so it's really good. I, I do suggest since it is a long book, the audiobook version is good, especially since I have some car rides coming up here for the holidays. Um, and then I also am I'm going to give in to temptation and go see the new Spider-Man. Um, so this past weekend, my all my roommates went uh, went to go see it on Sunday. So before that, we watched like four or five Spider-Man movies on Friday and Saturday to prepare them. Um, so that kind of got me back into it because I had only ever seen like the original, was it Tobey Maguire ones? Um, so I will venture out there and go see the new Spider-Man. I Highly, highly yeah. recommended. See it as soon as possible. I know, I know. Spoilers. So that's why I was worried highly that Trevor was going to talk about spoilers for it, but we're good. Um, but yeah, so I think that is that is going to be on my next few days, maybe. Uh, I I just this morning uh, just finished rewatching season one of True Detective. Uh, so good. I loved it when it came on, and my wife had never seen it, and we had just finished playing uh, Disco Elysium together. Um, and I was like, this was a big influence on the game. I think you'll really enjoy it. And, uh, she, as someone who admittedly, she was like, I do not get or like Matthew McConaughey at all, which I'm kind of ambivalent about Dang. it. She was like, <laughs> she, but, but she was like, I love him. I don't know why, but I love I, him. I think I do too. And it, it's, I think it's the Texan in me. Um, but especially in true detective, he's really good. Like it's, oh man, just. Rustin Cole is such a great character. The mood is this like perfect like southern noir going I I love it so much. Season 2, I watched two episodes of couldn't get into it. I don't care about LA. <laughs> um and then I heard there was a season 3. I haven't I don't know anything about it. So if it's good, hit me up on Twitter and let me know. <laughs> um and I also, because I was playing Disco Elysium, a game I highly recommend that we may or may not do on a future episode. We'll see. Um, I am reading China Mievel's uh, The City and the City, which is this really cool, weird fiction noir novel about two cities that sort of coexist in the same geographic space. And there's this weird sort of it's not 1984 really but there's like a, a sort of cultural way of unseeing people that exist in the areas where the cities are it 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 doesn't make much sense when you explain it but basically two cities exist in the same place and there is a conscious effort to ignore the people that exist scare quotes in the other city 
Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>